and all the praise. It's in your name that we pray this morning. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. Amen. If you'd like to follow along in your Bible in a little bit, I'll be in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a minor prophet, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Um, so it takes sometimes a little bit to find it. So uh, We started last week this new series of teaching about beholding the glory of God. And what we're really talking about is seeing God clearly and um, getting rid of misconceptions and confusions about God that come from a lot of different places. You know, we can have experiences in life. Uh, with family members or loved ones or something that kind of confuse uh, our understanding of God. But what I think for most church people, uh, what tends to confuse our picture of God a lot actually tends to be the Bible. Now, the Bible is also the primary source of revelation about God. But when we sort of misunderstand it or we, have, we see it through a uh, uh, lens of legalism and the law and so forth, it can be pretty damaging. So... Um, what I want to do today is start going through, I've got a lot of notes today, I may not get through all of them, and if not, nobody panic, all right, I know some of you are completionists or whatever, I'll come back and we'll, we'll finish it, but that's also part of why I write the notes, so that you can look at them, I think they tend to be pretty self-explanatory, so um, last week I... I talked particularly about the fact that Jesus and the Father are one and that Jesus is the full picture of the Father. And I, I, I still think that we struggle with this in some respects uh, and that we tend to divorce the Father and Son in our theology and in our hearts. And one of the ways I said that we do this is what we think happened on the cross. And uh, many of us are taught that on the cross the Father had to look away from Jesus and they couldn't look at Jesus and so the Father and Son are, are divorced um, in that moment and it appears that Jesus in you know, this horrible moment is sort of abandoned by his Father and while that paints Jesus in a powerful light, I, I believe it paints the Father in a light that's less than he actually deserved. And if, if you haven't understood that, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to last week's message. I thought it was really powerful and I explained that that the Father and Son actually worked together uh, on the cross to reconcile humanity to God. And that's what 2 Corinthians 5.19 says. And so um, this paints, in my opinion, sort of a different picture of the Father. He's not somebody who's freaked out and enraged by sin, but rather one who rescues his children from it. Now this picture that I'm painting for you, it stands in opposition apparently to some Old Testament passages. And I'm aware of this, all right? So what I'm going to try to do is reconcile some of those things for you. It can be difficult sometimes to reconcile the picture of God that is painted in some Old Testament passages with the picture that we have of Jesus. And what I would encourage you to do is... is the Bible does not contradict itself. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I'm going to explain to you why the picture looks a little bit different in certain passages. But if you can't reconcile what you see in the old with what you see in the new, 
What you're supposed to do as a Christian is say, I don't understand this Old Testament passage, but I know that Jesus is the full and final revelation of God. So Jesus has to be the picture that's painted on my heart of who God is, not something in Job that I can't understand right now. There's lots of stuff in the Bible that I still don't understand. I won't ever understand the whole thing, I'm sure, until I see Jesus face to face. And by that point, I may not even care. All right? But I probably will because I'm a theology nerd and I'll hang out with Paul or something. But the deal is, in the meantime, while we're in process, we're all in process, we're all learning, I've got to, I've got to put greater value on the things that Jesus said and lived out than things I see in, in the Old Testament. Does that, does that make sense? It does not mean that we don't... It's all Scripture. It's all important. But it's not all equally full of revelation. The revelation at the end is brighter than the revelation at the beginning. Amen. 2 Corinthians 3 says that. So anyway, I won't go back over. I already went. I already re-preached my message from last week. So, uh, but one scripture in particular that, that seems to contradict what I said last week and often gets used to disagree with me is Habakkuk 1.13. So let's read it together. It says this, it's Habakkuk talking to God and he says, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil, and you cannot look on iniquity. So, Pastor, it says right there that God's too holy to look at evil and he can't look at iniquity. Well, except not really. Because as what often happens uh, people pull one little phrase out of, out of a passage of Scripture and make an entire doctrine around it, and that's not what this is saying. This is actually saying, as I'll show in a moment, that God can and does look at evil. Uh, You've got to understand what's happening. The whole book is Habakkuk basically having a conversation to God, with God. And the first thing he does is he goes to God, you can read this on your own, and he says, God, and he starts to complain about all the injustice that's going on in his nation. There's all this evil, there's people sinning, you know. Some of you might have been tempted to complain about all the evil and stuff that goes on in this nation. And God, how is all this stuff going on? And Habakkuk saw that his nation of Judah had turned to idolatry and they were um, doing horrible things, sacrificing their children to to Moloch and all this in the same way that the Canaanites had prior to the nation of Israel expelling them. And, and Habakkuk's like, this is horrible. What's happening? God, how can, you, how can you allow this? And God's response is, don't worry. I will bring another nation, and he's talking about the Babylonians, to come in and they'll punish Judah for her sin. And then this verse is Habakkuk's response to that. And he says, he's basically saying, no, 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 that, I, I take it back. That sounds awful. Don't do that. And he says, you're too pure to see. You know, if the, if, if the uh, Babylonians come in there, they're going to rape people and pillage, and there's gonna, you know, they're going to burn the city to the ground. It's going to be horrific. You can't bring the Babylonians here. Your eyes are too pure to look on that kind of stuff. And he says, why then do why then do you look on them that deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devour the man that is more righteous than he? So he says, you can't look at all this stuff happen. Why are you doing it? 
So he's actually saying God is looking at all this stuff, and he's actually going to cause the Babylonians to come and, and destroy this nation of Judah. And Habakkuk doesn't like it very much. And then later God says, well, uh, Babylon will, will get what's coming to them as well, and it will all work out in the end. Now, if you've read the book of Deuteronomy, uh, none of this should be a surprise to you. It should not have been a surprise to Habakkuk. Because in the book of Deuteronomy, the nation of Israel makes a very specific contractual agreement with God. And they sign it in blood. And some of the blood gets on them and some of the blood gets on the book. Meaning that, that it's a contract between God and the nation of Israel. Very specific contract. Limited in scope and limited in time. And one of the things that the contract specifies is... If you as a nation go into idolatry and you don't expel these Canaanites and you start to worship their gods, what I will have to do is bring another nation to expel you from the land in the same way I have used you to expel the Canaanites. And as we'll see later on in the message, it wasn't actually God's intention to give this kind of contract. Initially, he wanted to give the nation of Israel a better contract, but they refused it and they sinned. And what happened in Deuteronomy ended up being a lesser covenant than what God offered. But nevertheless, this was the contract. And the contract specified that if the nation went into idolatry, God was obligated to bring the Babylonians or bring some other country to come and punish the nation. So Habakkuk doesn't like this, and he's saying, God, you're too holy to do it. But the reality is God's too holy not to do it because he made a promise, and he's fulfilling this promise. So what this is saying is not that God somehow can't look at sin. If, if God can't look at sin, then Jesus is not God. What do you think Jesus looked at when he walked around on the earth for 33 years? Okay, that's not what this is saying. It's just Habakkuk complaining to God and Habakkuk giving his opinion. But Habakkuk is mistaken, which we've all often been in our opinion about the Lord. Now, that's a small uh, thing, but I wanted to sort of address that because it's a specific thing that people use to talk about the cross. Um, but... And this is, I think, symptomatic of a larger issue, which has to do with the way that the law of Moses uh, obscures and sometimes makes it difficult to understand what, what um, is going on with, with God. And so I want to just talk to you a little bit about the law of Moses and how it relates to the wrath of God. If, if you understand that God deals with humanity primarily through covenants, and that he really means what he says when he makes these covenants, then a lot of the mystery in the Bible begins to go away. Because God really doesn't work in a bunch of mysterious ways. He makes covenants with humanity, or he makes covenants, actually we'll see the new covenant uh, is not between God and humanity, it's, it's between God and one human. Anybody know his name? Jesus. But anyway, he makes these agreements, and then, and then he follows through with them. And a lot of times we're like, well, God, why are you doing this? Well, it's, it's because of the covenant that, that we're in. And so I think that um, there tends to be confusion because we need to understand what our covenant looks like and how it's different than the one that existed in the nation of Israel. Sometimes you'll, you'll see things and you'll hear people say things like, well, um, 
you know, the Israelites, they were, they were sacrificing their kids to Moloch and they were doing all these sorts of things. And so God judged that nation. And then they'll say, well, you know, America is, is you know, aborting and murdering all these children. Um, and so it's likely that God is going to judge us and that he's going to bring, you know, North Korea and they're going to bomb us or, or China or whatever. And, and that's, a, that's a, a gross misunderstanding of, of the Bible and how covenants work. Why did God do that to the nation of Israel? Because they signed a blood covenant with God that that's what would happen if they engaged in that kind of sin. Now, that's not to say that abortion isn't a horrible evil. It is a horrible evil, and it has terrible consequences. You know, one simple consequence is that the labor force that should be existent right now is nowhere near as big as it, as, as it should be, which has created a lot of pressure on Social Security. It's created all these problems. If there's millions of people alive in the country that, that are not, we'd be in a different situation. Sometimes I think about, you know, why haven't we beaten cancer yet and all these kinds of things. And I don't know the full answer, but it may be that God keeps trying to send us people who will cure cancer and we keep murdering them in the womb. But... Uh, Anyway, I don't want to be, I don't want to dwell on that. I don't want to be a, you know, but I, it's, it's, it's a deal. Sin has consequences. But the nation of America, the nation of the United States, never signed a blood contract with, with God. There's a written record of, of the nation of Israel's contract with God. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is. And so that's why, if you read the book of Deuteronomy, the rest of the Old Testament makes total sense because he actually prophesies. Everything, everything that happens the rest of the Old Testament is, is a direct response to their failure to keep the, the covenant. But that covenant does not apply to the nation of, of the United States. And that covenant has been annulled or disannulled, Hebrews said. It's been fulfilled and done away with. And we now have a new covenant. And actually, it's interesting. I'll just teach this. We'll just go kind of slow because I want to make sure you understand this. Go over to Hebrews chapter 8 real quickly. This isn't on the notes, so I apologize. But um, <laughs> Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 8 he says, well, actually, we'll start at verse 7. It says, For if that first covenant, talking about the law of Moses, had been faultless, there should have been no place sought for a second, for the new covenant, which we now live under. For finding fault with them, finding fault with the old covenant, he said, Behold, the day's coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Stop there for a moment. A lot of times I gloss over that. But it's actually really important what he says there. I'm going to make a new covenant with who? Israel and Judah. Does he say with the Gentile nations? How come you get to be involved in this covenant that he's talking about? Here's the deal. In the Old Testament, there was a, contract, a contractual agreement between God and this group of people called the nation of Israel. But in the New Testament, there exists a contract between God and the house of Israel and the house of Judah exemplified in one person, Jesus. What he's saying here, and this, this was prefigured actually 
in the contract, in the covenant that Abraham had with, with God. So in Abraham's covenant, if you remember this, God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And he gets some animals and he cuts them in half. And he makes this bloody path down the middle of these animals. It's kind of gross, but that's how they did it back then. And the way they'd make a covenant back then is they'd cut these animals and the two parties would agree to something and then they would walk this bloody path together. And the idea was that the blood would be on both of you so you're both in covenant and if you didn't keep the terms of the covenant it was kind of like so be it unto, unto me as these animals, right? So it was kind of a harsh deal. If you didn't keep the terms they're going to cut you up, okay? It was a, it was a warlike society. But when God made this covenant with Abraham, Abraham cuts the things, but then Abraham never walks the bloody path. He's asleep the whole time. He's resting, just like in the New Testament. And a picture of God the Father and God the Son, a smoking furnace and a burning fire, they, they walk down the bloody path together. And this prefigures what God and Jesus were going to do in the new covenant. Jesus, as the perfect representation for all humanity, entered into a covenant with the Father. So now the reason that we, need, we can rest and we can sleep at night is that we don't uphold the covenant. It's not between us and God. It's between the Father and Jesus. So Jesus upholds my end of the bargain. So what, what do I have to do? I just got to be in Jesus. I just got to be in Jesus and not come out. And that's not, it's, it's, that's easy. All right. Just, just don't want to. As long as you, <laughs> all right. I'm in him and I'm not coming out. Somebody once said, <laughs> but, but here's this deal. All right. Is that there was this covenant that was between God and man, the old covenant, but we have a new one and it's different. And we'll talk about how it's different a little bit. But this old covenant, it, it was interesting because it actually seems to be, to me, that the wrath of God and God's anger at sin is primarily a function of the law. In fact, prior to the law being given, you can't really seem to find much mention of God ever being mad about anything. And the Bible actually says this in Romans 4.15. It says that the law worketh wrath, or the law causes wrath. For where no law is, there is no transgression. You can't transgress a law that's not there. And this is interesting. Prior to the law, skip over to Romans 5.13. It says, for until the law... Sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. So what he's saying here is that from Adam until Moses, there was a whole bunch of sin going on. But there was no law which said that sin has to be punished and judged. And therefore, there wasn't God directly angrily punishing sin. Well, that's a good word. Now you might think, well, but what about the flood? Which is a great question because it seems like God killed everybody on the planet except for eight people. How is that not punishment? Well, let's go look at it. Galatians 6. Is everybody okay? This is some heavy theology. Galatians 6, 
Verse 6. This is God's primary emotion during the flood. It repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Does it say anything about God being mad? No. Prior to the law, God's primary emotion towards sin is grief. What is grief? It's this this deep unease, this deep pain that people I love are making poor choices. It's really, it's the way you should feel about your adult children when they go off and make poor choices. Because if you get mad at your adult kids, what can you do? You're not going to be able to control them with your anger. Because they're going to do whatever the heck they want, right? And so what we feel really is grief. It's pain because I love my kids and I don't want them to make poor choices. And this is what God felt in the flood. It's not about judgment. Really, what it seems to be about is, if you look at it, it seems to be about the fact that humanity is just deteriorating to such a crazy degree. God's not punishing sin. He's not given a law. And so everybody is just doing what's right in their own eyes. And if all you can do, if there's no objective standard, and all you do is just compare yourself to somebody else, and you become a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, things just begin to deteriorate. And humanity, it says in this passage, if you read it later on your own, it, it, their, all their thoughts continually were only towards evil. They were just really, it was really, really bad. And it seems like that, you know, as you study Scripture, God needs people that will be willing participants in, in order for His plans to, to come to pass. He's going to do it, but you've got to yield to Him. You've got to kind of co-labor with Him. And it seems like He's running out of people to co-labor with. It's a bad deal. But here's, here's an amazing thing. Look at 1 Peter 3. I wouldn't make a big doctrine out of this because there's really only a couple scriptures about it. But 1 Peter 3, we'll just read it from the screen, verses 19 through 20 says this. This is talking about Jesus after he was on the cross. And it says, by, by which, by the Holy Spirit, he also went and preached to the, son, the spirits, excuse me, that were in prison which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein a few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Now, if you put that together with Ephesians 4, which says that Jesus went and took captivity captive, he led captives in his train out of hell, it's possible that what God was doing in the flood was a radical intervention in the hope of eventually saving all the people that he killed. Again, I wouldn't make a huge doctrine out of it. I don't know 100% that that's true. But that's what it appears like to me in the Scripture. Because what he's saying here is that there were spirits. People are spirits. That's our primary thing. And they're in prison because they were disobedient during the days of Noah. And it says Jesus went and preached to them. Now, again, that's a strange thing. You don't want to build a huge theology around it, but I know this, God's really, really good and really, really gracious. And I know that His default idea is to give people as much opportunity as they can to not be judged and not not spend eternity in hell. So it seems to me like God did something which appeared to us really harsh, 
probably because these people were deteriorating to a point where they had no chance of, you know, there, there gets to be a point where your heart gets so hard that, that there's no saving you. And it appears to me that God was trying to prevent that from happening, and then he put these people in a holding cell until they could hear the gospel. Does that mean all of them are saved? Probably not. But it's possible that many of them are. That makes me happy. I mean, you know. Here's the deal. You can only screw God up by believing He's less good than He is. So if I'm missing it, I'm missing it by believing it's not as good as it really is. All right? So that's a possibility. So God, He was grieved by sin. That's why He did the flood. Letter C there on the back. Whatever God's reasoning, I am beyond confident that the Father was using the least amount of force necessary to ensure the salvation of the greatest number of people. And I know that because that's consistent with His character as revealed by Jesus. So the part of history where God is angry at sin and is directly punishing it, it's limited in time and scope. It's this 1,500 a year or so period of time where the law of Moses is in effect. And once the new covenant is fully active, which you can argue doesn't actually occur until about 70 AD, um, then the old law passes away and the wrath of God uh, with it. So, this is why I'm confident that the wrath of God is not about to come on you or America or, or whatever. All right? Does that mean that we're doing everything right? No. We're doing a lot of stuff wrong and we ought to fix it. But God's not punishing us for it. Now, why then did God give the law? Well, that's a great question. Uh, it, it's for at least three reasons. One is that the law reveals sin and how bad sin is. So once again, if you think about what was going on with humanity, humanity was continually deteriorating. And we had no objective standard for what righteousness looked like. And we couldn't be born again because Jesus hadn't come yet. And so Romans 7, 7, if we can get that up there real quick, says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid... No, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, you shall not covet. It's a stunning statement from Paul. He's saying, I've got to have some objective standard in order to understand what morality is. Because I can't trust my flesh and I can't trust my emotions to tell me what's moral. It's, it's, it's fine to be led by our emotions if my emotions have been redeemed. But often they're not. <laughs> and often we feel things and want things that are not godly. You know, just because you, you, you know, want to go sleep with somebody that's not your spouse doesn't mean you should, should be, be okay to do it. All right? Why do I know that? Well, I may feel that way, but the law says don't lust. So there is an objective standard. And so what the law does is it helps us see what the objective standard is. Um, let's skip to verse 13. It also says this, Was then that which is good made death unto me, God forbid, but sin that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that, by the, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. In other words, it's just pointing out how bad sin actually is. You can get confused over time and forget that sin is really, really bad. Now, the grace of God is far bigger. 
That's why we focus on that. And, and you know, sin's been done away with, but you've got you've to understand that sin really is a big problem. And that's why the law was given, to remind us of that. And it's still useful today in reminding people of that. Some people are self-righteous and they believe that they can get to heaven on their own and, you know, I, it's not really that bad that I do all these kinds of things. And, and, you know, God loves you regardless of what you do, but sin is sin. Right. And it's bad and you need, a, you need a Savior. All right. And then secondly, the law pointed to Jesus. Galatians 3 verse 24 says that the law was our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. And this is a thing that the Israelite nation sort of missed out on. They began to think that the law would justify them. But what the law was meant to do was put a weight on them, a, a burden of responsibility that was too difficult to bear, so that by the time they were uh, you know, under this thing for 1,500 years and Jesus showed up, they'd be like, Jesus, save us. We can't save ourselves. That's really the whole point. The law was meant to entrap us or keep us guarded up like in prison until something better would come. And the thing that is better is Jesus. Now, the third reason, though, that the law took the shape that it did, and I want you to look at this one in your own Bibles if you have them. Look at Exodus 20. Exodus 20 and verse 19. Why did the law look like it did? Well... Here's one big reason. Exodus 20, verse 19. After God had given the Ten Commandments, which is this pretty good objective standard of morality, the people say this, They said to Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Now, earlier, God had said, I'm going to make all of you guys a priest. I'm going to make all of you a king. I'm going to talk to all of you face to face. We're all going to have intimate personal relationship. And they say to God, no, no, that's too scary. We need an intermediary between us and you. And that took the form of Moses, but really what Moses exemplifies is the law. And so what they're saying here is, God, it's too scary for us to have face-to-face -face relationship. We need something between us and you. And that thing became the law. And so instead of having relationship with God, what ended up happening is that the nation of Israel had a relationship with the law with this list of rules. And all their discussions with God centered around this list of rules and whether or not they had kept them. And what this does, as you'll see, this is a problem still today in church, is if people have a list of rules and all the discussion all the time is whether or not you have lived up to this piece of paper and whatever it is that I think you need to do, it actually shifts the focus from God, from relationship with Him, to relationship with some piece of paper, some document. And why, why is it that, that the law existed? Well, it's because these people, they demanded it. And people still demand it today. Why? Because interpersonal relationships are really scary. It's really painful. I don't have a list of rules in my marriage with, with my wife, 
But sometimes people do. Why do we do that? Well, because I don't want to have to talk to you about everything that bothers me about you, and so I'm going to have this list of rules. And so, look, you violated paragraph 2C. Here's the appropriate form. You know, buy me these flowers, and you know. This is why we have all these policies in our workplaces. Why? So I don't have to have personal relationship with my employees. Well, look, you violated this. And sometimes that, it's helpful. I'm not coming against that in the workplace or whatever. But I'm saying we've got a choice between personal relationship and personal accountability and accountability to, to the law. So here's the deal. Under grace, the rules are stripped away, and instead we're required to have intimacy with God and with each other. And this actually leads to greater levels of holiness, not, not lesser. Um, skip down to the end. An absence of rules does not mean an absence of accountability. Amen. It just means that the accountability is relational rather than focused on the rules. Amen. Amen. Thank you. I'm doing good. If I could get the music, uh, it'd be great. Let's look at one last scripture. Ephesians 4 and verse 30. Ephesians 4 and verse 30 says this. It takes us back to Galatians 6.6. 6. It says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. The danger in the new covenant is not making God mad. You are not going to make God mad. Jesus dealt with all that. The danger is I'm in personal, intimate connection with my Father, and I love Him, and I don't want to do something that would hurt His heart. That's what this is saying. Now, here's what it's not saying. Hear, hear me, all right? The Holy Spirit is not a bird. He is a person. And so the Holy Spirit is not like a skittish animal that if you do some kind of sin, He will freak out and run away. That is not what this is saying. All right? He'll stay with you regardless. He's with you through thick and thin. All it's saying is that He's Father and that He's made Himself vulnerable to His creation. And so as a loving son, I want to make decisions that protect His heart because I don't want Him to be hurt. Not because I'm afraid of His rejection. Not because I'm afraid that He won't love me. And, you know, I didn't realize this, but, but growing up, my mom modeled this so well for me. My mom loved me unconditionally. And I, I knew, I had no question, I could do anything. I could, I could go kill somebody if my mom would love me. There's nothing I could do to change the way that God felt about me, or the way my mom felt about me. And I'll tell you what, I never went through any kind of rebellious teenage phase. You know why? Because there's nothing to rebel against. Rebellion's often a function of the law. Now, sometimes it's a function of craziness. So don't feel condemned. But I, I just knew my mom loves me. 
But because of that, I would think about it when I was going to make decisions. And I would, I would see her face. And I would think about, man, I don't want to be involved in that. I don't, how would that affect how my mom, it, it would break her heart if I did that. Not that she'd be mad, not that she'd reject me. I don't want to break her heart because I love her. That's the New Testament motivation for sin. You know what that is? Not for not sinning, excuse me. You know what that is? That's the grown-up reason for not sinning. Let's all stand up. So the picture, the point I'm trying to paint for you is that, that this whole deal with the wrath of God and all this, it was limited in time and scope. Sure, God has wrath towards sin, but that's been dealt with. And so now we live in a new covenant between God and Jesus, and God's forgiven us. But that doesn't mean that we don't live holy. That doesn't mean we don't make a decision. It means we do it because we love His heart. We don't want to hurt Him. The pastor, I've already hurt him. I've already screwed up. Well, just forgive yourself. <laughs> just do better next time. Right? God's a big boy. He can take it. He can take it. He can take far more pain than you could possibly imagine. He's not stressed out by it. All right, if my prayer team could come down here, I'll pray for everybody. Father, we thank you for your goodness this morning. We thank you that you are so in love with your people that you're not mad at us. That you've called us to holiness out of personal connection, out of personal relationship and accountability with you. We just bless you this morning. We bless your people. And we just receive all that you have for us in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. We love you guys. If you need personal prayer, come down here. We'd love to.